Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. I can't tell you how excited I am about our guest today. Molly Hamer is the executive director of the Northbrook Park District, which is 17 square miles that are located about 26 miles north of downtown Chicago. Now, the district that she leads, it maintains 24 park areas comprising of community parks, activity centers, golf course, senior center, swimming pool, baseball and soccer fields, 19 tennis courts, 18 playgrounds, a theater, and what I love, two full-size indoor ice rinks. So Molly's been married to her husband, Mike, for more than 30 years. They have a set of triplets who they're very close to, and she's excited about being close to her two grandchildren who are three and two years old. Molly, I want to thank you for your service and dedication to your community. Welcome to Surfacing Leaders. Thank you for having me, Mark. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. So let's do this. Let's go into your background a little bit, where you were born, where you grew up, maybe some things that influenced you early on in life. And uh, let's start off with that. Sounds great. Well, I was born here in Geneseo, Illinois, which is a small town in Northwest Illinois. And we have about 6,000 people in Geneseo. And I was lucky enough to be raised in a traditional home. Mom and dad, who were high school sweethearts at my high school. Oh, wow. (laughs) Before me. And then I'm one of four siblings. And when, you know, loved high school and college. And, you know, when it came time to go to college, I went to University of Illinois and had a great experience there. Did something between high school and college that was a little unique, I think. Uh, Back then, I graduated in high school in 1976. We didn't call it a gap year, but we had had a foreign exchange student (laughs) from the Rotary program. You started the whole gap year thing back in 76? (laughs) Yep. That might be a thing. Maybe I'm a trendsetter. I didn't even realize (laughs) this. Our foreign exchange student was from Bolivia. She was from Bolivia, South America. And the name of the town is, oh, for heaven's sake. There's, I'm thinking of the Providences in Bolivia. Well, anyway, Sylvia was from South America in Bolivia, and she lived with us for the entire year. And, you know, we became fast friends and sisters. And when she left and went back home, she invited me to come and visit with her. And so I took a year between high school and college. Oh, wow. And, yes, I, I was there about nine months. So it was my actually my first commercial airline flight. And I flew from here to Miami and from Miami to La Paz, Bolivia, where they picked me up. And then we traveled from, yeah, from La Paz to our town. And Aruro is the name of the community where the town that we lived in. It was a paved road that was just a slab. And I thought, wow, this must be the back road. That's the only paved road I was on in the country the whole nine months I was there. Hold on. They named the, so, the town rural? Are you Aruro. Aruro. Oh, oh, I heard rural. Aruro. Yeah, I was like rural. Oh, yeah. was like, no. wow. yeah. <laughs> well, it was rural. Yeah. <laughs> About, you know, we're... 12,000 feet above sea level. So very different experience, a third world country. In order to speak with my family, we would try to make like an appointment through a telegram on the Hmm. phone. And it was almost impossible to talk to each other. We used to try to use CB radios that never really worked. So ultimately, we would, I would tell a story to them on a 
cassette tape and mail it. Oh, wow. And they would open it, listen to it, respond to me, and send it back. So we were telling stories back and forth on cassette tapes for all that time. So it was a really formative time for me because it forced me to be very independent Mm. and learn a brand new language through immersion. Sylvia and I decided that in order for me to really learn Spanish, I was going to have to speak Spanish with her and quit using her as a crush for my, for a crush for my English. And that really opened my eyes because then I could communicate independently and make my own friends. And I traveled to six of the nine provinces of Bolivia. We went over to Lima, Peru and saw the lost city of the Incas. I traveled with a friend. I didn't travel with Sylvia. And just a fin- we went across Lake Titicaca, which is the oh, highest wow. lake in the world, yeah. on a hydrofoil and really made our way with this girlfriend and I that traveled quite a bit together through a lot of interesting situations and came back to the United States with a new understanding and a new appreciation hmm. for our creature comforts, for our freedoms, for our education process. I mean, I was living with a middle class family. You know, Sylvia's dad was an engineer and they had a wonderful family and a wonderful experience there. It's just so different. Right. So different. Right. We didn't have running water after 10 in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, that, that really, I think when I went then to college, I was not only a year older than a lot of the freshmen, but I'd had this experience and you just kind of quickly adapt to college life. I loved college at University of Illinois. I loved my major, right. which is what I've done my whole career now. Back then it was called leisure studies. Now that same curriculum is called recreation, sport, and tourism. And you kind of move forward and tucked away a lot of those memories. But over the years, some of those experiences kind of have come back to me. And Oh, that's, yeah, that that's awesome. How do you think your time in, in Bolivia um, impacted you. And, and here's why I'm asking this is I had the same thing. When I was 16, I went to Germany for a year and I missed a year and I had to come back and retake it. I was a year older going to college with being in Germany. And, you know, the perspective that I got being in Germany as a 16 year old was the same thing. But I think, you know, Germany was more of a Western civilization than, than mm-hmm. Bolivia was. We had a lot, of, a lot of creature comforts. You know, we didn't have running water stop after 10 a.m., and I had such a deep appreciation for what the United States stood for, you know, being in Germany. And Germany was closer to the civilization that, you know, the we had in the United States. And, and Bolivia was probably further away from that. What type of impact did that have on you? Well, one of the things that I quickly learned is that their culture, the people in Bolivia knew so much more about the United States than anyone in the United States knew about Bolivia that I was in you know, that I was in contact with. Right. So when I came back and mentioned being in Bolivia, people would say, where's that? Literally, <laughs> many people didn't even know where the country was. Is it up near you know, Alaska? And, Alaska? Is it up near? Yeah, right, right. And when I was there, people would say, where do you live in the United States? And I said, Illinois. And they'd say, Chicago. Oh, yeah. So and then, yeah. where I'm sitting in my hometown is two and a half hours from Chicago. And right. I'd say, no, <laughs> really, right. my answer should have been yes, right, right. you know, yeah. but yeah, Chicago. And then they'd talk about, for example, Al Capone, somehow everybody seems to know about, <laughs> you know, the mobsters in Chicago and right. they would ask me questions about politics and, hmm. and, you know, the economy. And it was beyond what I was thinking about as an 18 year old kid that just graduated from high school. And so I think I learned that we can be very myopic and kind of self-centered hmm. in the United States and, 
kind of take things for granted. And I think I learned to count on myself. Oh, that's because awesome. Because I went through some hardships. Right. And I didn't have my parents to lean on. And, you know, when I came home, it was March or April and O'Hare Airport. It was a gray, cloudy day in Illinois. Mm. You know, one of those days that you complain about when you're here. Right. And I was bopping through the airport at seven in the morning like it was the best day of the world. You know, uh, I was just so happy to be home. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that we learn about ourselves and how our brains work. You know, I found myself thinking and dreaming in Spanish and that never yeah. dawned on me that that could be a thing, you know? Yeah. So you very immersed. Yeah. Cause I remember the day that I started counting, decided to count in German versus English. It was just something that flipped. And so, so that's interesting. Well, great. So you're finishing up at university of Illinois and, and where's your first stop? I was lucky enough to have uh, one of those situations where a lot of Park districts and corporate recreation agencies were coming to the university to do the interviewing at that time. And I just signed up for interviews because I wanted the experience and I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I hadn't decided on public recreation yet. And I interviewed with the Schomburg Park District. It was the executive director and the superintendent of recreation. And we hit it off and we had a great conversation. And they invited me to come back for a second interview. Hmm. And I w- drove up to Schomburg and went through a second interview and got hired. We had four aquatic centers and facilities and golf and all kinds of things. And I was kind of came up through the ranks. I was a rec supervisor, which is an entry-level position in our industry. Right. And soon I had an opportunity to move to the facility side and got promoted to an assistant facility manager. And then the facility manager left and I got a job as a facility manager. So soon I was managing people, right? you know, just three or four years out of college. And by the time I left there 11 years later, I was the department head of the whole recreation division, which was about 45 full-time employees, a multi-million dollar budget, a lot of responsibility reporting directly to the executive director. And so the first decade plus of my career was just full of growth and excitement and learning. And I had no interest in going to another park district. I just had so many opportunities there. Yeah, that, that's great. Because we're going to stay, you and I had a conversation, you didn't switch over to be a financial analyst and all, because we're going to stay in parks and rec. Why don't you share with us in general, because people are sitting there going, hey, what is really parks and rec? Perfect. Yeah, that's, that's a great context for this conversation. So, and Illinois is somewhat different than most of the other states in the United States. In Illinois, we have special districts, which means that a park district in Illinois is its own unit of local government. And in my case, the executive director reports to an elected board of officials. So I have seven commissioners that I report to. And then we provide services through tax dollars and fees and charges to the community. Everything from the facilities we have, for example, I'll I'll speak to Northbrook in general, but each community is somewhat different. We have a brand new activity center, which has a full gymnasium, indoor running track, eight laps to a mile, which is a nice big one, 10,000 square foot, this floor full of equipment, cardio weight room, Mm. and then fitness programming to programming spaces for yoga and group fitness and that type of thing. And then like an event space and an area for children to play. So that's one of our facilities. We also have an ice rink and we have two sheets of NHL size 
ice. And so we have a major program with hockey and figure skating. And, you know, we've had people come out of our program that are, we had the Stanley Cup come back to Northbrook last year because JT Comfort grew up playing at our rink. And then he is part of the Avalanche team. So as a Stanley Cup winner, he got to have it for 18 hours and he brought it back to his home rink. All right. And our figure Do you have a picture team, of it? Do you have a picture with Oh you? my gosh. Oh, yes. Oh, you got to share <laughs> I have a that. a picture with the Stanley Cup and myself and JT. He oh. was awesome. We oh, you got to share that time. with us. Yeah, we I gotta, will do that. We got to get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have two aquatic centers and we have a velodrome, which is one of the only 25 velodromes in the United States, which is a cycling track. Oh, wow. So it's a, a, a banked cycling, round cycling track, oval. We have 36 holes of golf. So we have a an 18 hole, a nine hole, and then a par three. And we have dozens of 18 playgrounds, dozens of ball fields, Hmm. outdoor, you know, tennis, softball, football. We have a huge synthetic turf field where soccer and lacrosse are played. We have a skate park. We have batting cages. We have sled hills. So many park districts decide in Illinois, depending on their size, offer all kinds of facilities and parks. We over, I oversee 535 acres of parkland. Okay. So a smaller park district might have 40 acres and a larger park district might have more. But it's the parkland, it's the facilities, it's the trails, it's all of those things that people access when it's their free time and they're choosing to explore whatever it is that they want to do in their free time. So you're at Schaumburg for 11 years, and then what happens? Well, (laughs) um, my husband and Mike and I had been married for seven years, and we were blessed with three babies on the same day. We had triplets. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And so I took a break. Uh, I resigned from my position. I went to my executive director when I found out I was expecting three babies and said, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this job and be a mom. I don't know what it's like to be a mom, but I know what this job takes. So we had a plan in place that when the babies were born, you know, I would step away from my career for a while. And Mike and I went to the hospital on a Tuesday for a planned C-section. They were, I think I was 38 or 39 weeks along. We had just been waiting for them. And the time came, our, our perinatologist said, it's time. We've got to, these, these babies have to join the world. So they were born uh, about 9.30 on a Tuesday morning, about 30 seconds apart. We didn't know what the sex was. We were we left that to be the gender reveal. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so we had, it's a boy, it's a girl, it's a girl. And 90 seconds later, we were a family of five. I laugh and say Mike drove. The next day, he went out and got a van. <laughs> and they were born on Tuesday, I think Friday or Saturday. We all went from the home from the hospital together. So they were never in the NICU. We were blessed with three big, healthy babies, and our life changed dramatically shortly after we realized that both of our, our hometowns are near one another. I'm from Geneseo, and he's from a nearby community named Atkinson. We relocated back here because we had a lot of family. So wow. we left the Chicago suburbs and came here when the kids were about nine months old, and bought a house and moved in, and it became a family affair. That's uh, awesome. His folks and my folks were all retired. And we had lots of aunts and uncles and cousins here. And so we raised the kids in a small town and it was fabulous. And I kind of always thought that maybe we'd be back to the suburbs because I so loved the suburban area. But it was so wonderful living near family and we just stayed here. 
and we still have our home here, but we have kind of had a city mouse, country mouse thing going on for a while because we've got a nice apartment in Northbrook as well. Oh, that's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jeff Jarose was on two episodes ago and I've done less than 10 episodes and I have two people on who've had triplets. And uh, yeah, I, I said to him and I'll say to you, congrats. You got done in nine months, what typically takes 27 months to do. So absolutely. So well done. (laughs) Got it all out. What a blessing. Yeah. I wish I could say it's just my propensity for efficiency, but actually it was God's blessing. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. I want to ask you a question here because, you know, back in 1992, when you had the triplets, you know, it was a different work environment. And there were, there were a lot of challenges. I mean, here you are, you're being, you know, extremely successful as a, as a business professional and as a woman, and then this happens. What, what did it feel like, you know, your tug of going like, oh, you know, motherhood and, and, and this, and how, how did you, can you, can you take us through that? Because a lot of people today, it's like, hey, you get 12 weeks off and we're going to pay for, you know, paid leave and, and all that stuff. Like, how did, how did you process all this you know and back then it was a different time but there were a lot more more challenges for women in the business and i think we're doing Mm -hmm. a way better job now of doing that but how how was it back then Mm -hmm. that's a rather emotional time for me because i was so committed to my career right and i loved the work i was doing and mike and i were dealing with some infertility issues that i had and it was very private for us Right. I had gone through three surgeries and spent some time away from work, but really didn't express to the people that I was working with what was going on. You know, I, right. I was able to be at work so much of the time right. that, you know, I think for a lot of people, there was not even an understanding that Mike and I were having this personal struggle. And so at the time, I went from being someone who was viewed as a professional to someone that was sharing this information that not only am I pregnant, but I'm going to have three children and I'm going to leave the workforce. And I had a lot of people telling me that's a mistake. You're going to slip backwards. You're going to lose Mm. your board advancement opportunities. Right. And I just, and I envisioned myself being a working mom, anticipating that, like most of us do, you're going to have one baby at a time. <laughs> I just kind of thought that that would be okay, you know? And so I think because of the infertility struggles and this notion, this fleeting idea of even being able to have a child, like, will this even be a, right. a reality in our life? Once we became aware of the fact that we were going to have our own babies, I just was immediately committed Got it. To, to being home with them. Right. You know? And so there was a lot of conversation and, I, and, and people even said, I can't even see you as a mom. And that was like offensive to me right. <laughs> because I had been in the world of work and right. people didn't see that side of me. So I made the commitment and Mike and I made the commitment together. Yeah. And I had some sense of innate confidence that it would be okay. I didn't know how. And I remember saying to Mike, I'm committed to being part of the kind of financial future of our family and putting these things to college. Right. I'll, I'll help with that someday. But right now my job is to be a mom and to, and to be a mom that's home with my kids. However, being a home, a mom that's not home with your kids is okay. Right. It's really okay. And 
Today, I think there's a lot more synergy between at-home moms and working moms. Back then, if you made that choice, I felt kind of guilty sometimes and Hmm. really had a hard time saying no to volunteer opportunities because people expected you to do it if you were the one home. Right. You'll, you'll be the room mom. Right. You're going to bake the cookies. You're going to do the running during the workday. And so really navigating that and, and respecting working moms. I have two sisters and they were both working moms. Right. And maybe that helped me. So Jake, my one sister took a, a short break, but for the most part, she was a working mom. So, and I, I told my executive director when I announced to him that I was pregnant and intended to leave that I had been in a position several times where women that worked for me came and said, I'm pregnant. Congratulations. I said to them, and then they'd say, I plan to come back after my leave. And I'd say, wonderful. And six, eight, 12 weeks, whatever it was, would go back and they'd come back and resign. And the reason they were resigning is maybe because they needed the benefits through that time. And now they changed their mind. Right. And I said, we can't put people through that. Right. You know, we need to give people an opportunity to be honest in the workplace. Right. And and find ways to navigate this. So I agree with you. It was it was a different time back then. And one of the things that I try to be very sensitive to and always have been now that I'm back in the world of work is pregnant moms and dads whose wives are expecting both. Right. Because it's equally as important to give the freedom and the guilt free open sentiment to a dad right you know they they are there too to help and to be part of all of that so good so after a couple years i think you then started reaching out a little bit right Mm -hmm. and uh, so so take us through take us through that so moving home to geneseo put me back in my hometown and we have a park district here which i had worked at during my summers of course and was very familiar with services. And so I ran for the board and I became an elected official. So for 10 years, while I was raising the kids, I was a commissioner for the Geneseo Park District. And that really gave me the opportunity to stay involved in my industry. Right. So I would go to the state conference and I was interacting with not only my colleagues, many of which, of course, were still working and not elected officials. I got teased a little bit about that, being a commissioner, but just kept me apprised of the changes and the growth and the challenges that were happening in my industry. And also, during that time, I got my master's in counseling. Hmm. Having been through the struggle with infertility, I sought counseling, which was a new thing for me that was never talked about in my home or people that I knew, really. And I really didn't tell many people about it. And I'm so thrilled with the fact that mental health awareness is such a conversation in our society today. But I kind of secretly went to to counseling and it really helped me learn and understand myself through the infertility struggle. And because of that, I was, and I love education and I love learning. My husband, Mike, was very supportive. So I went to school at night when he was here got my master's in counseling and maybe thought about a career in that way. But about that time, I was president of the board and our only executive director of the Geneseo Park District. He had been hired by the district back in the 70s, and he had been there for 32 years, and he retired. Mm, So that position opened, and I had an opportunity, and I became the executive director of the Geneseo Park District. 
the second one ever. Wow. And I was in that position for nine years. And that was another growth experience. But I just, I learned to kind of tell a long story kind of briefly. There was a job opening in counseling and I was interviewing for that job. And I was the board president interviewing candidates for the executive director's job. Right. And through that process, my eyes were opened to my love for parks and recreation, hmm. my passion for my community. I love the town I was born and raised in. We have so much history here with you know, generations of families that have grown up here. And I really thought, again, and I thought, you know, this is what I want to do. I don't want to go into counseling. I want to help my community through providing leadership as the executive director of the park district. And I was so thrilled to be appointed. <laughs> so you were first on the side of the, the district, and then you were on the on the side of the the district reports to the elected board. So then you're on the elected board. That was probably super helpful for you to see it from a, a different seat, a different perspective of the challenges that that both sides have. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has made me a better executive director, I think. And I know that it made me a, a good commissioner because you understand the role of a commissioner is policy setting. Commissioners aren't involved in the operations of the district. And so I just, I believe actually after serving nine years in Geneseo, which is a small district, to apply for a larger district back in the suburbs right. was a bit of a stretch. And I think that one of one of the reasons that they gave me the vote of confidence and hired me in Northbrook is because I had sat in their seat. I had been a commissioner. And one of the things I talked about in my interview was the clarity I have mm. of those roles. Yeah. It's, it's, it, you can try to think, hey, I understand what their challenges are. But when you actually mm -hmm. sit in the seat, I, I think it's so, so powerful. So, mm -hmm. so that's great. All right. I want to ask you in your first opportunity that you had when you're at Schaumburg, you went in, you were just hired to be a junior. What was your, what was your role? My first role, I was a recreation supervisor and I was the manager of the box center, which is a very small neighborhood center, two programming rooms okay. and a pool. <laughs> so you start off with that and then, then you elevate 11 years late, later to leading 45 people. How old are you during this time? I was in from my, well, let's see. When I left, I was 34. And when I started, I was 23. Yeah. So 11 years through my, through my 20s into my mid 30s. Yeah. What did you, what did you learn uh, about leadership during that time? I think I learned, I learned a lot about leadership. Leadership has a lot to do with relationships. Mm. I believe that leading people has a great deal to do with knowing the people that work for you and understanding who they are, what their strengths are. I think I learned that later in life, I learned about knowing yourself. But I'll start out with that as I was beginning to lead people, having a clear understanding of their job descriptions and what they do, when you have a lot of people that work for you, right. that can get muddled if you're not paying attention. I know this person does recreation programming in this kind of area, but I think they might have a special event, but you know, and when you understand what each person does, and then you get to know those people and you understand their contributions, the communication with you, you have with them becomes meaningful to them because oh, you great. can say, 
I realized that you're the one that is really looking after that after school program. And that's so challenging because so many of the people that work for you are young kids. And, you know, are they showing up for work? What's your biggest challenge right now? You know, or now, you know, maybe we have someone who's started a new program. And we have new programs starting all the time. We have hundreds of programs. But if I run into somebody who just started a new program and say, how's it going? Who's the instructor again? Tell me about your new instructor. How'd you find that person? Because, you know, our instructors for all these programs, that's a side hustle for a lot of them. You know, many people and finding these instructors can be so challenging. So as you remember what you did and come up through the ranks, I think that leading people is really understanding, you know, what they do where they fit in the organization. If they, and, and another thing that's so important is giving people context. I always think that people buying into the mission of the park district is huge. And so it, you're better off hiring a cultural fit and training them mm-hmm. than hiring somebody with every single credential possible, but they don't love what we do. Right. So when I think when I, the more responsibility I had, the more people that I was responsible for, then the more often you'd come before people in a staff meeting, for example. And so giving context, why are you here? Why are you at this meeting? You have a weekly staff meeting with your direct reports, of course. But if you're having a bigger meeting because you want to keep people informed on what's going on, I just think that's such an important part of engaging the employees by bringing them up to speed with what's happening in the district, showing them the big picture, wow. you invite them to the meeting, you tell them why they're, when they're coming, why they're coming. And then while you're explaining the initiatives of the district, you're infusing that with where they fit in. Even if you're not saying, here's where you fit in, Jim, you know, you're talking about that division, that department or whatever, yeah. so that when the people that work for the agency can more naturally be engaged, because knowledge is power. And now they understand more about what we're doing. Oh, it's fantastic. That's really great information, very sage advice, especially for these times. You know, hire for the hire for their, their values and really train them for their skill and then showing people how what they do connects in the bigger picture and what their role is. Oh, just just really, really, really great advice. And to learn that at a very young age, what type of impact did that have on you? I think Positive reinforcement gave me confidence, possibly, is that I found that people responded. Oh, yeah. So you know, you're feeding I mean, off of the, yeah. the response. Yeah. 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 You know, I when I first became the facility, the assistant facility manager, that was the first time I had, like, year-round employees. My first job, I had instructors. Right. You know, I didn't. And so these people worked at the facility, and they were custodians, and they were front desk employees and customer service reps. And I was so intimidated. Yeah. A lot of them were adults. I'm, you know, three years out of college. Right. And I was like, how? And plus, I grew up with a self-employed dad. So there was never, nobody ever talked about a boss in my house. Right. You know? right, right. I didn't know anything about being a boss. Yeah. I didn't want anybody to call me a boss. Yeah. I just wanted to be on a team, you know, so it was like, okay, well, they voted me chair captain. I'll just pretend like I'm the captain, you know, and we'll just be all on the same team. And so I really tried to just relate to people and 
own up to my mistakes and not to take myself too seriously and just work with them behind the counter. And they knew, I remember that they knew the, the cash register and the point of sale system. And I didn't know it. And it wasn't, I was like, teach me how to do this. I don't, hmm. if, if yeah. somebody comes and asks to buy a membership, I don't even know how to sell a membership. And, you know, training back then wasn't like it is now, right. you know, and right. so I didn't have a computer on my desk for heaven's sake. Right. Think about that. That's like crazy. Yeah. So I just really think that, you know, just aligning with people and working together and then seeing results and having that positive experience is help me gain confidence. It is so interesting because you, you try something or you do something and you get this positive response. You can feel the energy back and you're like, I didn't even know I did that. But then you're like, oh, I'm going to put that into my toolkit. Because that worked, happens again, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that. All right, fantastic. All right, so where's your next stop? Well, after Schomburg was Geneseo, of course, after the stint yep. of that whole raising the kids in a way that was the way Mike and I chose to do it. But when I became the executive director in Geneseo, we had had the same leader there for, like I said, over three decades. And I very quickly found when I was on the other side of the desk that we weren't really producing our services with best practices. Hmm. And so I think that is one of my more challenging leadership moments because I very quickly started making some decisions that weren't popular. Hmm. It was really very different than the way things had been. And it was going to be more structured and it was going to be more, maybe more sophisticated professional. This is how it's got to be done, really, you know? Right. And so, and you're in your own hometown. Right. And so people, I think people knew me from high school sometimes, you know, and they look at recreation and they think you're wearing a whistle around your neck and you roll a ball out in the field and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't realize that we have an indoor pool and we have a huge community center and right. we have an outdoor pool that is beyond its useful life. And it's, failing and we don't really have the funding to, you know, there's just the financial piece. And so one of the things that I initiated was to become accredited and really the accreditation process, which is voluntary. You don't have to do it, Hmm. but it's through our national and then state organization is to meet all this criteria to become an accredited distinguished agency. And following that roadmap was what got me, it gave me a start to get us where we needed to be. It was a great template really to follow. A lot of work. And but and the the individuals that I became their supervisor, you know, when I was appointed to this position, I was now, you know, in charge and they'd been there for a long time reporting to somebody else. And I think they were excited to have me on board, you know, new fresh air, you know, breath of fresh air and everything. Mm-hmm. But then it was like, oh, <laughs> She's going to do this and she's going to do that. So it was, again, uh, kind of employing what I learned is getting to know people, understand who they are and what are what are their strengths and how do they respond under stress? Mm. And how can I mitigate that? How can I create an environment that makes people feel safe? Because, you know, now all of a sudden things are different and we're exposing things that weren't maybe nothing was at all like fraudulent or illegal or anything, but we just weren't doing things the way we needed to be doing them. Right. So that was hard. 
once we had our ducks in a row, I would say we were accredited and we received the Illinois Governor Official Finance Excellence in Reporting Award. And, you know, we were doing well. And, you know, some of the angst was behind us. The We have an outdoor pool in town and it was built in 1954 and it was renovated in the 70s and it needed to be replaced. And, you know, pools in the Midwest are open for three months, if, if that. Right. And so we were surveyed the community. Statistically valid and reliable survey showed that 64% of our community, whether they use the pool or not, thought it was very important to the community. Mm, okay. That's a big number. And so, and we were getting positive responses in terms of just the image of the, of the park district uh, at this time. And so we launched a campaign to replace the pool. And with the architects that we hired, it was about a $6.4 million project, which sounded astronomical to this community. Right. So we did a capital campaign. And that's not really common for a taxing entity. But I hired an amazing woman who's been doing this her entire career. And we put together, well, we developed a foundation for the board. And then I got some key stakeholders in the community who believed in the project, who helped me find other people in the community whose voice resonated. So we found people in every generation and we put together this team and went about going out to bid for this project. And we applied for a state grant. And we received a $2.4 million, $2. million state grant, and we raised $2.2 million in the community. So this $6 million pool cost the Park District residents really about less than about $2 million. Hmm. And it went from being something that people were very curious and skeptical about, how can we spend this much money, to really asking people, what would we do if we didn't have an outdoor pool? Right? Hmm. You know, it's just, so it was a huge success and it is a beautiful facility. It's an aquatic center that, you know, has a zero depth entry and water play features and a mm. dive well with water slides and climbing rocks and a vortex pool and a splash pad that's open for free to the community, you know, and so it's just been such a great success. And I think that's really a testament to a community that is willing to listen and be invested in their own future. And especially to John and Carla Edwards, who are our biggest donors for it. There are people that uh, John Edwards grew up in this community, and he just truly believed that every child should be able to ride their bike to the pool and swim, just like he did when he was a kid. So, you know, I guess I would say that Geneseo is fortunate today to have an amazing executive director <laughs> who's doing a great job carrying on and doing more and exciting improvements in terms of the facilities and the programs and everybody's really enjoying that indoor that, that outdoor pool the john and carla edwards aquatic center right i was completing that project is when the northbrook job opened right. and so i i applied for the i did a lot of soul searching for that too because my mom and dad are here in geneseo and siblings and cousins and mm. our kids now are at this point in my career are off to the university of illinois and so I decided that it was time to broaden my horizons and try to challenge myself to a new career opportunity. So you go from being in a, a position in the first opportunity 
in Schaumburg, and you rise from like entry level to having 45 people report to you. What do, what did the Geneseo Park District look like as a team? How many how many employees? Seven, seven, about seven full time employees, and you know, in the summer with our pool, we have probably upward to maybe 60, 70 full-time employees. I'm not even sure anymore. Right. So I'm a much smaller team. Right. How did, you, how did you go? Yeah, how'd you go from having <laughs> like 45 people reporting to you then with a, probably more resources down yeah. to seven? How, how, did you, how did you navigate that? Well, I think that I'm not afraid of work and rolling up your sleeves and being able to be boots on the ground is okay with me. Right. And I did similar things. I just aligned with the team and we worked together and developed our own sense of who we are as a team. And I, I found that I had buy-in and acceptance and we had fun. You know, I, I always think having fun at work is a huge part hmm. of job satisfaction. And I think the key is that there's, well, now in, in Northbrook, for example, there's 75 full-time employees. Right. And I have subject matter experts in the workforce. You know, people that work for the Northbrook Park District who are literally experts in what they do. And so when you go from two different larger districts and then in Geneseo, it was just about being resourceful and finding ways to learn, either learn together. You know, sometimes there's delegation. This is, this. I'd like you to figure this out. We don't know this. <laughs> As a team, we don't have this. So I want you figure this out and I'm going to go figure this out and we'll come back together and, and make a plan. And continuing education is huge. I never miss state conference and every opportunity. I remember the first time I, I attended a webinar. We just thought that was such a funny word because it was a seminar. Right. You know, you had to get in your car and drive somewhere. Right. And when we could go to a, a webinar on the website and learn while you were sitting in your own office. It was just the coolest thing ever, you know? And so I think it's about, you know, I'm going to go back to what I said before, understanding your team and where are those strengths and leveraging that. You know, when you've got somebody who's totally into customer service, then that's the person who's going to develop our new customer service plan. Right. You know, and, and give that person resources that maybe they've not used before. I had a lot of connections from Schomburg. So I would get on phone calls with some of the staff in Geneseo with my contacts in other park districts and introduce people and say, she's going to pick your brain, you know, and, great. and then somebody else likes numbers. And so I'm like, okay, we got to analyze this. So we all found what our part was on the team. And then we used the resources of not only people, but educational opportunities and reading and consultants and just a variety of different avenues to pull together the information you need to put together a plan. I love it. So very resourceful. And it sounds like it wasn't a hierarchy organization framework. It was, it was more <laughs> like, hey, we're going to figure this out together. And if you can figure out faster than I can, then no, not invented here, just, you know, isn't, isn't really in there, which is great. It's great. What years? What years? What years is that you that you moved to um, Northbrook? It's Northbrook, Brook, right? Northbrook. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What? So I moved in 2016. I became the executive director in Geneseo in 07, and I was there for if that works out to nine years. Yes. And then in 16, 
I was appointed in Northbrook. So I've been in Northbrook since for seven years now. Right. Yeah. We were talking the other day, just in a call and I wrote this down because I thought it was so relevant. You know, one of your mantras is, I think it's play every day. Mm -hmm. Is that probably right? Absolutely. Take us through that. Describe that to us. So play is different for everyone. And this is one of the things that I think is, it's so apparent to me because it's so important to me, but I think that it's important for me to say it over and over that what we do for people in parks and recreation is provide whatever it is that you might want to do. I mean, maybe our district doesn't have indoor tennis, right? But I guess what I'm wanting to say is if you want to train for a triathlon, we have aquatic centers, we have trails, we have a cycling track, we have classes, and there are amenities that you can access to do that. If you want to read a book in the quiet of a park under a tree on a bench, next to a pond or a gurgling brook, right. we have that, right? And so play is so different. Play is being in a play, literally being in a musical, learning your lines and coming to hmm. practice or rehearsal and seeing your friends and learning your staging and your blocking. That's playful to somebody who wants hmm. to do that in their free time, right? So we work and we take care of ourselves and we maintain our own personal person. And then there's a chunk of time that we have that's free. Even when we're the busiest that we are, there's still some time that's your free time. And Mm. that free time, be it a large amount or a small amount, is when you get to pick what you do. You get to pick what you do. You get to pick who you do it with or what it is. And that's play. To me, that's the play. And it's different for a child than it is for an adult. And if accessing your inner person and knowing how you like to play is something you're good at it just brings it brings joy it brings satisfaction it brings contentment i admired my parents because even later in life when we lost my mom first and then my dad he lost his mobility and he was a track star oh and his legs he was 93 and you know he was smart enough to use a cane and then a walker when he needed to because he wasn't stubborn but he still was playful in in his approach to life. And so that's what play every day means to me. I think that's great. Now I can have a stronger understanding of all of, of the different offerings and services that you have. Play is defined by the person. And what you're yeah. trying to do is just facilitate that play. I know when I did a lot of educating myself on how to be a you know, better youth soccer coach, they talked about when I went to the a week-long course on, on how to teach eight to 10-year-olds how to play soccer. It was very interesting, the, the importance and the psychology behind play and how important it is for childhood development. And and then even at, at end of life, you know, to, because my dad's 85 years old. I'm talking to him the other day. I said, what are you doing today? He goes, oh, I'm going to go play pickleball. And I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's just fantastic. I love that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Now, mind you, I I, uh, talked to him a couple days after he played. I said, how'd it go? He goes, oh, they know I can't get to the net. And they know I can't. (laughs) So he goes, my mind, my mind is still like, oh, I can get that. He goes, the one thing is the cement's pretty hard if I do fall. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Boy, pickleball has really taken off, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and there's huge. He he just said, "Hey, what used to be now they got all these young people who are playing it, and they are just mm-hmm. you know tremendous, tremendous mm-hmm. pros." Mm-hmm. So, if you look back on your career, what is it that you learned that helped you to surface as a leader, and what are you most proud of? I would say that possibly the biggest lesson I've learned is that knowing yourself is really the beginning of all wisdom. It's just an incredible aspect of leading is to know yourself. And it's not easy to know yourself. It's challenging because you have to study yourself. And we're all very, very busy and we're accomplished and we're productive. And so maybe it's easy to just say, I've got it. I don't really have to spend any time. It seems counterintuitive. To Isn't that self-centered to think about yourself? Maybe that's too self-centered to think about yourself. And I would say, no, it's incredibly important to think about yourself. And so, because the most important relationship you have is the one with yourself. Yeah. So, I would say that in order to be your best professionally and personally and to give to other people and to help mentor and lift up and support and lead others, knowing yourself is crucial. So I would say that's my answer to your first question. <laughs> Let's stay on that. Yeah, it's interesting. Most recently, I've been you know, talking about the relationship, the strongest relationship that we have every single day with the person who we talk to the most, and that's, that's ourselves. Yeah. And absolutely, Mark. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's interesting because, you know, there's there's always this saying of I'll get off of a stage and, you know, I'll be sitting there going, Oh, I missed that. You know, I didn't pause long enough and everything. And and then I have, you know, I'll have some support members who are who are there supporting me. They go, We didn't even notice it. You know, and so it's this thing of like of we tr- we treat ourselves worse than you know all of those yeah. questions that we get to get to ask ourselves. So I think those are you know very revealing. You know, especially mm-hmm. you know the age age that I'm at, and I just go like, gosh, I wish I would have been asking myself these questions when I was you know 23. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. knowing yourself, what action items do you take to know yourself? How do you open yourself up to know yourself? Okay, I think there's a, a few different ways. I would like to just jump back to that voice in your head that you were talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Because that, and then, and I do have some things that, like, how do you get to know yourself? And so I'll kind of talk a little bit about that. But, you know, statistics reveal that it's a staggering percentage of negative self-talk that people do. And the voice in your head is real. Everybody has it. We all talk to ourselves all the time. And it shouldn't be as negative as it is, but it's common for it to be negative. Like you just said. You're an accomplished professional and you own your own company and you've done all these things and you're invited and paid to go speak somewhere and then you get off and beat up on yourself. Like, what? <laughs> like, people wouldn't believe that, you know? Right. But it's common for us to be hard on ourselves. And I had a moment that was very revealing to me and that really speaks to how to be mindful about how you talk to yourself. And this is what happened. So, my daughter Sally. And she moved to L.A. after she got out of college. And she became fast friends with Anna. And Anna went to USC. And so they both found themselves right out of college in L.A. And they met through mutual friends. And they just, they're best friends to this day. And, you know, fast forward to, you know, a few years later, Anna gets the job of her dreams as a back roads cycling guide. Hmm. So today... She is leading groups through South America and Europe on bicycle tours. Oh, wow. 
just a phenomenal opportunity. She lives in Mallorca, Spain. Sally moved back to Chicago. She's now a publicist, but because of, you know, social media and the way our world is so small, they've just maintained their friendship and they, you know, they're best friends. Well, they love each other. And Anna is just this, you know, she's a yogi and she meditates and she leads groups, you know, all over the place. And she's so grounded and lovely as a person. And the marketing team for Backroads came out and took all these pictures. And she sent this picture to Sally and Sally shared it with me. And you can see in your mind's eye, picture this, an adorable young woman in her thirties on a bike with her helmet Hmm. and her gear and this beautiful landscape behind her. She happened to be in Mallorca in her favorite place, big smile on her face. And Sally sees this picture and she sees her best friend and imagines what an amazing experience these cyclists are having with her as their leader. And she said, you look fabulous. You look so happy. And the words out of Anna's mouth was, I look awful. Why do I even try? Oh, geez. Yeah. And Sally said, Anna, don't talk to my best friend like that. Oh. Would you say that to me? Oh, that's great. Do you think Anna would ever say to Sally, Sally, you look awful. Why do you even try? Right? The voice in your head is talking to yourself. You're your own best friend. Don't talk to yourself like that. Right? So... That is so important that, you know, to find a way to talk to yourself in a way that's encouraging and uplifting mm. and not negative. And you have to be mindful about it. It's not, it doesn't come naturally. Self-discovery and understanding who we are is a learned skill, just like leadership. It really is. Wow. I believe that. Like I got a tear in my eye because I've never, oh. I've never heard it from that perspective. I've always heard, hey, someone says, would you treat someone like you're treating yourself? Mm-hmm. And I love the, I love the action. It was a statement it said, don't treat my friend mm-hmm. like that. It, yeah. was, it was to the person. I'm like sitting there yeah. going like, wow, that's so powerful. Yeah. Oh. Love it. Love <laughs> it. Thank you for sharing. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time on Surfacing Leaders. It, for me, it was a fantastic conversation, learning about your background, learning about your approach to leadership. And uh, I, w- I want to thank you for, you know, serving your community and, and the impact you've had in your community. So, so thanks so much, Molly, for being here. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me too, Mark. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, Make it a great day.